Allow me to paint a vivid image in your mind for just a moment. Onion rings, sautéed onions over a steak, bloomin' onion, French onion soup. And now, imagine a world without onions. Sarah Stricker is here to prevent us from that terrible, harsh reality. My name is Louis Colabertolo, and I am a student at the University of Guelph trying my best to get a PhD in food science. And in my free time, I like to talk to different graduate students, past and current, who know a lot of stuff about what they study and want to talk about it. And it's a good thing, too, because people like Sarah Stricker are out there saving the lives of onions every single day. But who knew onions were in so much danger? Well, that's why she's on this episode to talk about it. And while listening to this episode, do me two favors. One, try not to cry. And two, remember that we are just graduate students and we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? Doing very well. How are you doing? I am doing pretty good over here. Could you walk us through that educational history of yours? So I completed a Bachelor of Science at the University of Guelph. And then I actually went and did a Bachelor of Education too, because two bachelors are better than one. Um, and I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I went off into the teaching career for a little while. I dabbled as a grade six to 12 science teacher. I even flew across the globe and worked in the UK. It was really difficult. And at that point I decided to come back and do a Master's of Science. So it was at University of Wealth again in the School of Environmental Sciences under Dr. Tom Shung, and it was in the field of plant pathology. So plant pathology is plant diseases because plants get sick too. And that sort of rolled into afterwards, I, I got connected with Dr. Mary Ruth McDonald in the Department of Plant Agriculture and started a PhD program with her. So lots of paperwork. <laughs> Yeah, you've you've given Guelph a lot of time, haven't you? I really have. I think I have been here for more than 10 years, not consecutively, but yeah, yeah. University of Guelph is, I always wanted to go here. I actually had pamphlets from the University of Guelph posted on my wall when I was in high school because I was just so sure I wanted to come here. So normal people, not normal, different other people will say had like, you know, Backstreet Boys and sync on their wall. You had pamphlets advertising the University of Guelph. Yeah, I had the portico. If anyone has been from, to the University of Guelph, Johnson Hall, Johnson Green, there's this like white statue thing, looks like a doorway that was on my wall. There you go. There you go. If you need interior design tips, Sarah is available after this interview. <laughs> okay, so you said uh, in your little description of what brought you to this moment, you said that plants get sick. Um, yes. I get sick as well. Uh, why should I care if a plant gets sick? Well, we eat plants. <laughs> All of our amino acids come from plants. You know, we can't make them. So all of the proteins that are in your body, all of the fats, everything came from either a plant or an animal who ate a plant. So it's really important that we keep plants healthy, specifically the ones that are used in agriculture. But we're also interested in keeping plants healthy for other uses, such as ecosystem services. So, you know, the trees in the forest giving us oxygen to breathe 
or for ornamental reasons like roses in your garden. You want them to look pretty. Okay, so, you know, I might get a cold or I might get a flu and I kind of get over it, right? Like mm -hmm. it takes a little while. I'm miserable. I'm I'm a baby when I get sick. I, I can't function. <laughs> Uh, you get the man cold? I get the man cold. I get the man cold hard, though. I can't move. So what what does it look like when a plant gets sick? Well, often you'll see something like yellowing. So plants like to be green. You know, if they're green, that means they're doing their photosynthesis. That means they're turning light into sugars. And if it's working properly, they look green. If they're not working properly, they start to look yellow, brown, maybe purple, maybe red. Depending on the kind of symptoms, a green leaf will change its color. It might die, that leaf might fall off. The entire plant could die. Um, sometimes um, they will rot. So a type of disease is a rot. So you might see bacterial oozing. Um, you could see dark, fleshy. Um, you've probably seen this in your in your <laughs> Uh, refrigerator or on your in your kitchen that your oranges turn green and fuzzy and that's a plant disease too so in general it just is a breaking down of the plant tissue right so uh, you know, there's a lot of different categories of plant diseases that's what i'm getting from this yeah just in the same way that humans can get sick from viruses bacteria and fungi plants can get sick from those too did you know, actually, that uh, some of the most common fungi that infect us are on our scalp, um, dandruff, or on our feet, athlete's foot? They are both caused by fungi because they are, they're not very good at surviving in warm conditions. A fungus is not going to like to come inside your warm body. However, plants are not warm. They have no way to keep their internal system warm. So they get attacked by lots and lots of fungi. Um, we get attacked by bacteria pretty commonly. And so that's when you would be taking antibiotics to cure your bacterial infection. Bacteria can also infect plants, although fewer because bacteria usually like a warm environment. So bacteria, not as big of an issue for plants. Then viruses, we've learned a lot about viruses infecting humans this year. And we know that you, it, a virus needs to have a living host to do its replication. And it can be spread through, you know, saliva, spit, contact, all those things. Plants don't have saliva. They don't move around. So it's a little bit more difficult for a virus to get transmitted for plants. So they're less common. But there are ways to transmit things between plants, which include, you know, your equipment. If you're pruning your plants, that can transmit bacteria, fungus, virus, and also insects like leaf hoppers. So if it feeds on one leaf and then hops to another leaf, then it can infect the plant that way. Okay. So the, this, this insect hopping from plant to plant, it's almost in the same way that if I were to not cover my mouth when I cough, I'm kind of spreading that onto someone else. Exactly. Yeah. So if you are coughing onto someone, we call you a vector. It means that you are carrying the disease and spreading it. So insects are often called a vector of plant viruses or other plant diseases. Okay, so then what would some other vectors be in the plant world? So I did mention uh, pruning equipment. Humans are really good vectors, you oh, know, yeah. walking through a field and mm -hmm. just 
getting all the fungus spores on your pants and spreading them that way. Wind is a really good vector, specifically with the pathogen that I work with, it's airborne. So it just produces fungal spores and they get up in the air and they can blow hundreds of kilometers on a windy day. So there's that and, and tractors, machinery, all sorts of things. Anything that moves through or around plants can be a vector for the diseases. All right. And the, these plants, they really can't avoid these things. As you said earlier, plants don't spit or walk, which it that just elicited such an image in my brain of a spitting and walking plant. So, so they can't walk. The plants can't go somewhere else if they feel they're, you know, a bad situation. I see an elevator that has too many people in it. I'm not doing that elevator. Plants don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But we have ways to change their environment that will decrease the chances of getting diseases. So if we know that we have a disease, we can do like a quarantine, we can prevent that type of tissue being moved. So when we knew that there was a disease called plum pox virus in Niagara region, Niagara region, there is a quarantine for plum related uh, plants to move out of there. They're not allowed to move out. You can bring new plants in, but you can't move anything related to a plum out of Niagara region. There's a quarantine. So um, this is this is why when I go over the border, they are real strict about agriculture. Yes. And that's why you shouldn't be moving plant seeds or plant tissue across any border. Don't take them into airports because we are the worst vector. We we are the ones that are transmitting diseases. That's how things get across oceans and into different countries and across continents. So do not, please do not uh, take souvenirs that are plants. Yeah, so we were the vectors. We are, we are, we're the enemy in this. I, I don't like where this episode is going already. We started, we're the enemies <laughs> in this. But we're also the friends because we can do things like, um, increasing the planting distance so that there's more wind flow. We can trim the plants back to allow the air circulation so it's not so moist and so you can't have fungus growing in the moist air there. We can apply fungicides. We can do all sorts of management techniques that decrease the chance of that plant getting sick. So we're, we're an enemy, but we are also an ally. Okay, so then if we think about like a preventative measure or preventative measures or or let's in this case think about it like preventative medicine versus reactionary medicine are you more of mm -hmm. a plant doctor or a plant trying to not have you have to go to the doctor kind of person kind of both i guess i i guess the not having to go to the doctor part it's like a naturopath you know someone who's going to help you be as healthy as you possibly can so you don't go into the hospital. And a doctor would be, you're in the hospital, you're getting diagnosed, you're getting treated. So on both, um, I really believe in what's called integrated pest management. So it's using all of the tactics together, the precautionary and the post-treatment together to reduce the amount of disease to the point that the farmer or the grower, whoever is making this plant isn't going to suffer an economic um, downside. Okay. You don't want to lose money. Right. So so if you're able to implement treatments to prevent the mold from happening in the first place, and you're able to cure the plant from, uh, if it actually does have mold on it at that time, you're able to save a lot of money. 
Because the the ulterior of this is to what? Like uh, uh, destroy the plant? We can't eat yeah, for an sure. infected plant, can we? Depends on the disease. So if it's something like mold, like you're talking about penicillin mold, botrytis mold, that's going to change the flavor. Some of them produce mycotoxins. So like fusarium produces a toxin in grain that it's really bad for you. There's one that mimics estrogen hormone and it causes interesting changes in your body. (laughs) So let's (laughs) let's leave it at that. There are lots of uh, bad things that you're not going to want to eat that. It's not going to taste good or it's going to have a negative thing. On the other hand, other diseases, a lot of other diseases, just make it look ugly. So a lot of viruses make it look yellowy or bumpy or wrinkled. Actually, if you've ever seen the pumpkins that um, around Halloween time that look really bumpy, they're orange pumpkins, but they're bumpy, they actually probably have a virus. Um, if you've ever seen tulips that have stripes in their leaves or in their um, in their petals, the red and white stripes, that's a virus. Um, so there are benefits, you know, we might like how they look. Um, so some diseases are positive. And on the other hand, some just cause like a decrease in yield. You know, if you're sick, you're probably not going to grow as well. So maybe that plant doesn't make as any as many tomatoes or the tomatoes might not be as big, but the tomatoes are still edible. This brings up a, a real ethical concern. You know, we have those ornamental, uh, the, the, the gourds or whatever that come around the Halloween time. And um, I know that some people like prefer the tulips that have the stripes on the leaves. There is there like um, a PETA equivalent for plants, like the, the, the ethical treatment of plants? Like, is someone going to be like, hey, how dare you give that gourd a virus so you could use it for your cornucopia? No, there's no real ethical, you know, I don't have to do an ethics board thing okay, to do my no research. IRB. I don't have to. <laughs> no, because they're not considered living. We're not causing pain to them. And and it's pretty easy with plants to produce lots of seed. So it's not like I'm going to be um, harming the population. However, if you're working with something that's like endangered, for instance, the corpse flower, if you've ever heard of the corpse flower, the University of Guelph actually has two of them. They are the biggest flower in the world and they smell exactly as you think they smell, ah, like a corpse. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that before. Where where are they in the university? Are they in the Arboretum? They are, no, um, they are tropical plants. So they're in a greenhouse, I think in the EC Bovey building. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever they flower, they, they will post something online. Yeah. You can go see it and smell it and you don't need to go. <laughs> It'll save you the trip. It smells really bad. But they're, they are endangered. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. My past university had one, and it stinks. It is. Mm-hmm. It's, I, it's, it's like dead. I don't know. It just smells like what I assume a dead body smells like. Exactly. Yeah. But they are endangered. So they're actually starting to do sort of a breeding program across different universities and, mm-hmm. and botanical gardens that have samples. And so... It's not necessarily ethics, but some people have questions, you know, why are we trying to save that plant? Is it worth the time and effort? And on the other hand, who are you going to trust to do that? Because if you're going to be transporting, you know, pollen from one plant to another and it's an endangered species, can you be trusted? That is an interesting point. But you got to probably admit to some degree that this corpse flower brings in 
uh, kind of like an influx of people that might be not normally interested in plants and botany, they might want to go and see this corpse flower. So it has almost an educational purpose to some degree, no? It does, for sure. And that's sort of the like, wowee science, you know, that's some of the things that like gets people in. But it's not, you know, an economic benefit. You could argue back and forth. We actually had a discussion in, in my journal club about the corpse flower last week. So yeah, I could talk about the corpse flower for a while. But that's not what I study. I study onions. Um, because so something equally stinky, they, they stink too. I mean, like you, you deal with stinky plants continue. They do. Yeah. And, and actually the stink or the smell that like makes you cry, it's, it's a sulfur compound and it's the plant telling you, ouch, I'm hurt. Please stop. (laughs) So really you can't be mad at onions. They're just doing self-defense. Um, but yeah, onions are a pretty big crop for Ontario and Quebec, actually, because they only grow in a specific type of soil. It's called muck soil, M-U-C-K. And it's exactly as it sounds. It's very mucky, it's wet. It's It used to be a marsh that they drained. It's black soil and when it rains, you could pick it up like clay. It's really heavy soil. But the, the onions love it because they ha- get lots of room to move around, you know, if you actually go in the middle of summer and you could just rake your fingers through this soil, it's so soft. So onions love growing in muck soil. And there's only a few regions that have this type of soil. Ontario and Quebec have a lot of it. So it's kind of important, like you said, to treat the disease where it is because there's only certain areas where we can grow this crop. So we have a disease that's here. It causes a dieback of the onion leaves, can cause decreased yield. And we can't just pick up and move somewhere else. We need to treat with the conditions that we have. Ah, okay. All right. So this is where that twofold approach comes from. You want to prevent these onions from getting it. And if they do get it, you want to be able to protect the onions that already exist. Um, yeah. So so then let me allow me to make a differentiation. Uh, if we get like one of those gourds that has all the bumps over it, you can't really reverse that, can you? Viruses are really difficult to work Mm -hmm. with. Um, Typically with viruses, if you have a virus infected plant, it's going to be removed from the system. It's going to be composted or or burned or something like that. Um, With bacteria, fungi, depending on the crop, if it's something like a tree, um, it might survive year to year and it might not have that infection next year because we have a great thing called winter, which Mm -hmm. kills off a lot of fungi and bacteria. So it could be something that happens only in some seasons um, and that your plant just lives through it, or it's something that you can cure. So there are preventative fungicides, which you're supposed to apply before an infection. And there's also things that are called curative. So they're able to go into the plant, protect new tissue, and also fight off infections that are currently there. Okay, and that's obviously super important. So, so the the mold that you're talking about, the fungi that you're talking about, um, it you said it affects the leaves of the onion, but it, I'm assuming not the bulb, but just the leaves. Yeah. So, if if you imagine a plant, if it has less leaves, you're probably going to have a smaller root because the leaves are things that's making the food to build the plant tissue, right? So it does affect the bulb in the fact that it can make the bulb smaller 
Um, and there's also a, a bit of a downside is if the end of the season, we don't have any green leaves, typically we apply something called a sprout inhibitor at the end of the season um, onto green leaves. So if you know onions, you don't want them to be sprouting, right? But an onion is wanting to sprout the next season because it actually is a biennial plant. It grows over two years. So it's grown all summer, made a root that survived over the winter. And the next year it wants to flower like a tulip. We want to stop it from flowering because we want to eat it. Mm. So we want to apply a sprout inhibitor to our onions. However, you can only apply that at the very end of the season when you have green leaves. If this disease, which is called Stemphilium leaf blight, and you can imagine from the term leaf blight, it kills the leaves. So if you have no leaves at the end of the season, you're not gonna be able to apply a sprout inhibitor. So your onions, not only are they smaller, you might have fewer of them, and they might sprout in storage. Mm. No one wants that. Right. Okay. So this there's a lot of factors to this. It's not just like, oh, okay, it makes the plant worse. It's going to affect the, the now, the future, and then the far future of this plant. Mm-hmm. So you kind of want to nip it at the bud. You want to make sure that it never happens. Um, I would love that. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. We're working. We're working over here as fast as we can. Um, but this is not kind of a, uh, problem. You can't just like look up in a plant dictionary. Do they have plant dictionaries? I feel like they do. What is? Sure they do. Encyclopedias? It... Yeah. A plant encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, so you can't just look it up and say, ah, oh, yes, we use this against that. Um, you, you have to research it. Yeah. And it's a moving target too. So previously we've used fungicides that seem to be very effective and, up until about 2015, we started noticing those products aren't working anymore. So I was testing those chemicals in the lab to see, are they actually toxic to the fungus? And I have found that no, they don't work in the field because they're no longer toxic. So it's something that's called fungicide resistance or also called fungicide insensitivity. The fungus is no longer sensitive or able to be killed by this chemical. So it's developed a gene through, you know, mutation, something that's called selection pressure. So did you ever play the game with the um, wooden blocks and their different shape holes uh, in yeah. that thing as a I've child? I've done that once yes. or twice. Yeah, so the square hole, um, square fits through the square hole, the round peg fits through the round hole, the triangle fits through the triangle. Okay, great. However, if you then change that so that all of the holes are square, only the square ones are going to get through, right? So in the same way is that if you apply a selection pressure, so if you apply a fungicide, the only thing that's going to survive is whatever had the mutation to survive. So they get through and they proceed to the next generation and they make more of themselves. And the next generation the square hole, square peg getting through the square hole, they're going to get past the fungicide again. They're going to reproduce. And so the fungicide resistance increases in the population until the the fungicide doesn't work at all. Does that make sense? 
It makes perfect sense. It's kind of like the theory of evolution, but this is on a very, very small, moldy scale. Yeah, and I don't want to say evolution because evolution is something that changes over thousands of years. This is something that can happen over a year. Oh, it's fast. like We saw it happen in the field over five years, you know? So, and some, if you stop using the fungicide, then the, the population will naturally trend back and, and you'll get to, to see more of the squares and the triangles and the circles, they'll come back naturally through natural mutation, you know, differences in genetics just occur through sexual reproduction, right? So the, the population can change back and maybe you'll be able to use that chemical again, you know, one, two, three, five, ten 10 years down the line. It sounds like your job is never done. It sounds like this is gonna keep you, one mold sounds like it could keep you employed for the rest of your life. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, like I said, it's a moving target because oh. you're working with a, a living organism and it's going to change over time. And the conditions are changing over time every day. You know, we're looking at climate change. And so as temperatures get warmer, are we able to grow onions further north? Or are we going to have a different location to grow them? Uh, is the fungus going to move up with them? You know, that kind of thing. Or is the warmer temperature going to make the disease more prevalent, less prevalent, we don't know, you know? So that's why there's always a job for a plant doctor. Yeah, clearly. And and this is just for one plant. There are so many plants out there. Now, now does this mm -hmm. mold affect all types of onions? Because we got a lot of onions out there. Yeah, I mean, most onions are actually the same species. It's uh, the Latin name is Allium cepa. So the green onions are the same as the yellow onions, which are the same as the red onions, which are, they're all Allium cepa. Um, it also infects garlic, which is another Allium. It's, mm -hmm. it's related, but slightly different. You can kind of taste, you know, garlic tastes like onion a little bit. It infects leeks. Also, this fungus infects pear trees. It infects asparagus. I found out that infected eight different weed species that we have in the Holland Marsh. So this fungus is not a specialist. It's a generalist. It will eat anything. It's like me at the Chinese food buffet. I'll take a sampling of everything on that buffet. Yeah, no, and, and that, that buffet can't stop you. So you... Exactly. Are, are you just figuring out a treatment for onions or will your treatment work for asparagus? Will it work for the weeds? Will it work for everything? I'm... Uh, focused on the onions because of the specific area that we grow onions in. We had a previous uh, PhD student work on the same fungus on asparagus. And I know of other people who've worked with it, especially it's more of a problem on pear trees in, in Italy, in Spain. So other people are working there on that. Um, and, and we collaborate, actually, we have a collaboration with researchers in New York. I've connected with researchers in Germany and Everyone's working on the same fungus, even though it infects all sorts of different crops. Right. And, and the, I guess the thing about the work that you're doing is that it benefits everyone when you do this research. It's not like you're just trying to corner the market on this one thing. Yeah, I really like research in agriculture because there's a specific group of people we're trying to help. We're trying to help the growers. And by helping the growers, we're helping the consumers. So we're helping the people who like to eat onions. And so it's not the kind of science that we're hiding away and not sharing our research and we don't want to talk about it because it's secret. It's the kind of research that we are 
printing on pamphlets and handing out to people who are physically going to use it in the field next summer. We, um, as researchers at the Muck Crops Research Station, because it's on Muck Soil, remember? <laughs> M-U-C-K? That's the name of it. That's, That's the... where we do the research. It's the Muck Crops Research Station. We host an annual growers convention and we stand in front of the growers and tell them, this is what I did. This is what I found. We also give them a free publication that is available on our website. Anyone can find it. It's on the University of Guelph Muck Crops Research Station. Every year we put, publish, you know, these onions work better than this. This fungicide works better than this. This tractor sprayer worked better than this. We are doing research that the growers want to know the results for. So we give them the results because they're going to apply it. Yeah, so your research doesn't just go into the void of literature that goes out there. Yeah, you got like a real purpose for doing this. And in, in what you're doing today, is it like ready to be implemented next year? Like what's the time frame on this kind of stuff? Well, because last year I found that two of the fungicides that we commonly use in the field, they're not working. They're, I, I have data to prove, don't use them. So... Our research staff at the Muck Crop Station are putting out to the growers, don't use them. So this year, I found this 2020, in 2021, those fungicides will probably not be applied by a lot of the growers. However, there are, you know, early adopters, some people that will just trust what you say, and then others will wait to see what the results are. So not everyone's going to follow the recommendations right away, but a lot of them do because the growers have a connection with us as researchers they were part of deciding what research happens so they have an investment in it you know so they're more likely to take on your recommendations and apply them so i really like the system that's at the muck crops research station it's it's pretty unique yeah so one it saves the growers mm -hmm. the uh, money that it costs in order to buy the chemical and spray the chemical and do all the treatments, but it also reduces what we as the consumer come in contact with on the plants themselves. I mean, how often have you seen onion leaves? Oh, good point. <laughs> good point. I yeah, don't. you're probably not really in in contact with a lot of the fungicides that we apply for onions. Mm. Um, I mean, yes, some of them are considered systemic, so they go through the system and they could be in the bulb. But there's a very strict regimen that you have mm. to follow. There's a course you need to take and you need to have a license to apply pesticides. You can't apply pesticides right before you harvest them. There needs to be a specific time period, which is um, proven by the chemical company and by external researchers that it's it's going to be on the plant for this many days out in the field. It's going to break down to that there's a, a limited exposure limit for your uh, consumers because this is food that goes into your body. So we need to make sure that it's safe. And right. there are spot checks through the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. There's a lot of safeguards for the consumer in Canada. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a large topic in itself that I think is worth just, just touching on for anyone who's listening, is that they're they're not going to put things in your food that they don't need to put in your food. Yeah. There's no sense in it. It doesn't make sense. Why would they do it? Uh, and Why would you harm your customer? 
There's no sense in it. It's ridiculous concept. I mean, it makes sense that some people are afraid. It's because we have a disconnection from our food. It's because you see the onions wrapped in the orange bag, the plastic bag in your grocery store. You have no idea where that came from, how that was grown. And you don't, it could have been in Canada. It could have come from Mexico. You you don't know. So because we have such a disconnect from how food is grown and what is required by growers, you know, what kind of training they have, that's where the distrust comes from. So I'm not mad when people say, you know, oh, are my onions going to hurt me because you applied fungicides? I'm not mad. I just kind of, it's okay to be afraid of what you don't know, but don't be afraid to ask questions and learn things so that you're not afraid anymore. Super. That's beautiful. That I'm 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 to tears right now, because that's just a beautiful way of putting it. So, as as a as a researcher right now, you're getting your PhD. You're doing a whole bunch of onion research. Um, do you feel? And and this is kind of a very speculative question. This is very far future. Do you feel like this is something you could be doing for the rest of your life? Where do you what What's next for Sarah? I would love, I don't know. Um, I I think I'm not necessarily going to be an onion researcher for the rest of my life. I'm not stuck on an onion. I actually did my master's of science with a fungus, but infecting turf grass on golf courses. Mm. So, you know, I'm not attached to the crop so much. I like the interaction between the crop and the fungus. I could go into something about bacteria or viruses. Um, I'm looking right now for what's called a postdoc position. So I'm finishing my doctoral position now. I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> Plant doctor. We said it a bunch of times. So <laughs> Doctor. Yeah. So I'm going to be Dr. Sarah. And then I'm looking for a postdoc position, which is after doc. Um, it's just a job working for a professor and learning from them. I would love to be a professor specifically at the University of Guelph. If anyone is listening who hires for University of Guelph, please hire me. Because <laughs> um, I think I would be a really good educator. I have a background in education. I have a lot of passion for this specific subject. But I also recognize that the amount of professors that teach plant pathology specifically, it's pretty limited. It's, it's really hard to get those jobs. So I would like to be involved in education. I might be involved with research at the Muck Station in the future or another type of research station like that, I might go back and teach high school. I don't know. I'm pretty flexible at this point, but I definitely want to do things like I'm doing with you right now, talking to people about science, because at the basis of this, my passion is education. That it really is. It's beautiful. So it, it's not really that, you know, oh, look, there's Sarah. She's the young girl. Don't smell her breath. She's probably just eating raw onions all day for the rest of her life. There's a lot of things that you could do with this. Yeah, with a PhD or even a master's or even a bachelor of science, depending on what you're doing, you're learning research skills. So in a, a thesis program, so a master's of science, you can do thesis or you can do course-based. Course-based is that you take classes and then you get a, a master's. I really like the thesis-based programs because it means that you need to look at the what is currently known about this crop or issue or whatever you're looking at. Look at what needs to be known. You know, what are the questions that are still unanswered? And then you need to pitch a plan. You need to make a proposal on how to answer those questions. And then you need to go and do that research and you need to go find those answers. And at the end, you do what's called a defense 
and you have to defend your answers. You have to defend that you did the research in an ethical and and good way that's accurate, precise, and dependable. You have to defend your research at the end, and then you get a master's of science or a PhD in science. So that's why I really like these types of programs, a master or PhD, um, with a thesis. Yeah, and, and you are learning how to learn. Exactly. You're learning how to research. You're learning how to do statistics. You're learning how to identify research that's, you know, an outlier, something that's wrong, you know, how to think critically about your own research or other people's research. It's you're learning how to research and you learn a lot of different skills through it. Like, you know, public speaking was not something that I thought that I was going to learn at the University of Guelph, but here we are. Here we are. So then are, are you ready to deal with a barrage of onion related questions now? I guess so. Okay. What <laughs> is your favorite onion? Do you have bias? I promise I won't tell the onions. <laughs> I actually really like white onions, um, but we don't grow them here. We actually grow a lot of uh, yellow onions here. We grow yellow and red, but I like white onions. Those are the ones that are commonly used in Mexico. They're the Spanish onion. I think they taste good. Okay. So then uh, what is your favorite preparation of onions? I always saute, you know, saute with butter and mm. maybe mushrooms. That's a, mm, the perfect combination between plant and fungus in my world. <laughs> Pretty much every dish that I start with starts with garlic, onions, mushrooms, butter. So you, you are fighting the fungus on the onions only to reintroduce onions with mushroom, which is a fungus, in your stomach. Yeah, for sure. They're totally different. Um, so uh, mushrooms are a type of fungus that um, produce a fruiting body. It's it's like the flower of the fungus. That's the mushroom. The real fungus is the log that was infected or the bag of sawdust. You know, if you've ever seen, it, I, I highly encourage anyone to Google how to grow mushrooms because everyone can grow mushrooms in their house if you wanted. Um, but so the, the actual flower, um, part that you're eating is like the flower. Um, so a lot of other fungi, like the one that I work with, the flower, uh, quote unquote, is microscopic. It's the, it's what's producing the spores. Um, and, and you've heard probably spores before. Can you think of dust mold, all that, like it's in the air. It's the same as pollen. It's very similar, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, um, I, can, I can compare plants and fungi to each other all day, but actually, Fungi are closer related to animals. Isn't that weird? Right. Yeah. Aren't we're we're closer to fungi than we are to bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And fungi are closer to animals than they are to plants. So, yeah. Interesting. Hey, you're as a, a food scientist, so you know this. Have you heard uh, the term mycoprotein? Oh, big fan. Big fan. Yeah. So myco means fungus, and protein is protein. So yeah, yeah you can actually get protein from eating fungi and which yeah. is the flower the mushroom is the flower of the fungus quote unquote <laughs> yeah and that's where we find like a lot of uh you know uh, vegetarian and vegan based replacements are from mushrooms like i think that the biggest mm -hmm. one is a portobello burger right mm -hmm. if you I close your eyes you can maybe convince yourself that it's meaty when you eat a mushroom but mushrooms are they're chock full of amino acids they're delicious Mm-hmm. And where did they get those amino acids? Wait, where? well, where do they get them? 
from the plants they decompose. From the plants they decompose, obviously. I, I don't know plants. Right? That's why plants are so important. That's why I want to be a plant doctor, because all the amino acids we get from them, right? They take sun energy and turn it into something like all of the building blocks for our entire body. It blows my mind. That, that concept is insane. Like it, it the, mm-hmm. the transfer of energy all the way from there. The concept in itself is such a large thing that it has layers and layers and layers and layers to it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel the segue right now? Do you feel the segue? Okay. Onions. <laughs> yeah. To, <laughs> okay. Now I'm, I'm an ogre. I'm like an onion. Yes. And layers. That's what I was going for. I was going to give you a Shrek quote. I promise it. I was, and you beat me to it, and I'm so happy that you did. Sorry. You're an ogre? You smell? Yeah. Uh, I know. I know exactly where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. You. So <laughs> you. All right. Fair enough. Maybe maybe my agenda, my secret agenda was to call you Shrek by the end of this episode, but I'm glad that we came to these terms on our own. Yeah. So, all right. <laughs> to wrap things up, to, to put a tidy little bow on everything today, um, what would you say is the most important thing about what we talked about today and how that really could affect anyone who's listening? Um, I think that... We should trust scientists out of all of this. I think scientists need to get better at communicating their research so that it's not so scary and that consumers should not be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question unless it's a question that goes unasked. So if you have something that you're afraid about, go and ask a question. That's why we have Google, but that's also why we have educators, you know, go ask someone who's doing the research to explain it. Um, so that we have less people who are, you know, flat earthers, anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, all of that is coming from a place of fear. And if we can, we can use the education as a bandaid for that fear, we can cure it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That is beautiful right there. Um, and it, it touches on the thing that you were saying earlier. Uh, we, we, as scientists, were trained to find out something that might not really be true. And that is mm-hmm. such a tough skill to learn at face value i believe almost everything is true but then you have to dig and dig and dig and dig and honestly i'd be willing to say that you have to rake the muck to get to the sweet fruit on i don't know okay i don't know where i was going with that one i give up (laughs) yeah i wanted to say muck it's a fun word to say um yeah no i think as a scientist, we need to get better at speaking to the, the blue collar person, but we also have to be careful because when we generalize, when we simplify our information, we are actually losing information. So I've done a I've done a scientific poster with lots of words and lots of jargon and lots of graphs, and then I've done a grower related uh, poster and it just has less on it. So when you're simplifying you're making things less accurate so there's a line that we have to tread between you know science communication and getting the accurate information out there and simplifying it too much to the point that it's no longer true and that is a tough balance to find that is really that is one thing that i think as as scientists we will continue our entire lives trying to find that line Mm -hmm, for sure 
for sure. That's a good one. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've known a lot of picky eaters in my time, and for some reason, onions is usually on the top of the list. So maybe they don't appreciate what Sarah's doing, but a lot of people who love onions or grow onions really care that Sarah is working towards making sure that the molds that are currently affecting onions won't in the future. Now that moving target is certainly difficult to hit, and that is why Sarah keeps on running. The official standpoint on We Know Some Stuff's opinion on, well, knowing stuff and onions is that we like them. But we also like to fact check because, well, you know, we know stuff. Some stuff. And that's the, that's the name of the show. So that's why we do a fact check is we know some stuff. It's not we know all the stuff. Something worth re-clarifying is the name of the mold that Sarah studies and how it affects the onions. So it's called Stemphilium leaf blight and it only affects the leaves of the onion plant but if it affects the leaves then the fruit the onion bulb can't grow that big so it produces smaller onions but the mold doesn't necessarily get into the bulb or the edible flower so as uh, sarah says of the onion so it might be hard to tell if the onions in your kitchen right now have had the blight or not but the Reality of it is that you're probably not eating an onion that had the blight because it probably didn't grow to be as big enough to be sold and, well, consumed. So that ends our fact check and we shed another tear for onions and for, I really do hope, the last onion crying pun that I will use this entire episode. Thanks for listening to another episode or a, another tear jerking episode of We Know Some Stuff.